Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the stories that we were waiting for all week was how the president was going to react after he was acquitted by the Senate in his impeachment trial. And the victory lap was classic Trump. After being acquitted by the Senate on two impeachment charges, the president gave a wide-ranging speech where he knocked his foes like Mitt Romney and Nancy Pelosi, he praised his allies, and called the investigations into him BS. The big question that remains is how the country is going to move forward after so much division. You might remember to a lot of people's anger, Nancy Pelosi did rip up that State of the Union speech after the president delivered it. So for more on this, we spoke to Meredith McGraw. She's a White House reporter at Politico. The president is coming off of this acquittal feeling totally vindicated and excited to have the chance to go after some of his political enemies, people that he felt have taken him to court with all of these things. And he's really played a victim role throughout all of this. He's claimed that he's been unfairly targeted. When he was making his speech, I kept thinking about President Bill Clinton after he was acquitted when he came out actually to the Rose Garden and made an apology to the people of the United States for his behavior and his actions. And that's not something that we got from President Trump today. Instead, he went right after his political enemies. He went after Nancy Pelosi. He went after Adam Schiff. He went after James Comey, a lot of the folks that we hear him rail against all the time. And then he also took the moment to thank some of his biggest allies in Congress, people like Congressman Mark Meadows, people like Congressman uh, Steve Scalise and others who were loyal to him throughout this whole ordeal. In many ways, this was a return to classic Trump. We had the State of the Union earlier in the week, and he stuck to the script for the most part. There were some made-for-TV moments. All in all, it was fine. It was decent. But this was classic Trump, as you mentioned, just railing against a bunch of people. And he even called it a total acquittal. <laughs> he mentioned it a couple times. Okay, so let's go through some of the airing of grievances. Starting off with the National Prayer Breakfast earlier in the morning, without really naming Mitt Romney or whatnot, he said, I hate it when people use their religion as a justification for doing what they know is wrong. As far as Nancy Pelosi, he said, nor do I like people who say I pray for you when they know that's not so. And they were both in the room sitting not too far away from him. And the president has bristled at their comments in the past, particularly you named Nancy Pelosi when she said that she prayed for the president. She prayed for the presidency. Of course, Senator Mitt Romney is a devout Mormon and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is Catholic, and they're both very open about their faith and both very open about talking about the influence their faith has on their politics. But when it came to Romney uh, talking about the reasoning for his vote yesterday, that was one of the more open times he really has been about the role his faith plays in politics. And the president took issue with that, of course, and at sort of an awkward venue. The National Prayer Breakfast is a large bipartisan event. They pack a giant ballroom over at the Washington Hilton. And, you know, it hasn't stopped the president in the past from making remarks that maybe I would say, are a little tone deaf for the audience and the reason that they're all there. But it didn't hold him back from using that as an opportunity to take some swipes at them. Back to his celebration speech at the White House, the president kind of 
started from the beginning. You know, he said, since I was walking down the escalator, people have been trying to stop me. And he said, we went through the whole Russia, Russia, Russia thing and, and the Mueller report. And he called that first investigation BS. And he kind of went through that whole timeline from the very beginning. He ticked off all of the ways he felt that he's been treated unfairly throughout his presidency. I actually had learned that there were prepared remarks for his noon speech, but the president decided to forego that. Obviously, there weren't any teleprompters in the room, and he had a paper in front of him. I don't know what was on it, but it seemed to be a list of lawmakers and guests who were there that he could you know, reference to. But the entire speech was off the cuff, and the president's Speaking, speaking his mind um, on everything from, like you said, the very uh, first days of his presidency where he has felt that he's been under attack and unfairly targeted by Democrats. Yeah, he said if there was evil people there, he called Nancy Pelosi a horrible person. I think he said the same of Adam Schiff. There were some kind of weird, awkward moments. You mentioned Steve Scalise. He, you know, was praising him and all of this. He praised Mitch McConnell as well. But with Steve Scalise, he started talking about when he got shot at that baseball game. And he, I think, and he said, hey, you look better now than before you were shot. Some weird, little weird moments that popped up throughout that speech. He did. And it's sort of classic for any Trump speech where he's speaking off the cuff like that, whether it's a campaign rally or any speech where he has the leeway to go in his own direction. He'll often follow one storyline and use it to take him all all sorts of places. So it wasn't surprising that he went off on a tangent, although this one was particularly graphic. He was talking about the horrific shooting of some members of Congress when they were practicing for the congressional baseball game years ago. But it was certainly um, an odd tangent to go off on. Meredith McGraw, White House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next, we have a fun story about breakfast, one of my favorite meals. And most popular chain restaurants are going to go all in on breakfast, spending millions of dollars and hiring thousands of people to expand their offerings and hopefully win the battle for the growing breakfast market. With the rise of food delivery apps, we're seeing foot traffic diminish for lunch and dinner at many places, and companies see huge growth potential with breakfast. Wendy's, for example, is going to be launching a new breakfast menu next month. For more on this story, we spoke to Erica Pandy. She's a reporter at Axios. So you're seeing it with a lot of chains, as you said. The, the big one, the eye-catcher, was Wendy's, which at the end of last year announced a $20 million investment and 20,000 new hires to get into breakfast. And then you've got McDonald's. Uh, you know, in the most recent earnings call, the CEO said, we got to win breakfast. He cited it as the most important and most key focus for the year for growth. Burger King and Taco Bell have started adding to the morning menu more than their other menus. And then, you know, what's interesting that we found is that the chains who are already playing in breakfast, Duncan and IHOP, are trying some new things, whether it's plant-based or new restaurant formats to take an even larger share of the breakfast market. Yeah, you mentioned McDonald's. They said that breakfast is 40% of their profits, which is crazy because breakfast is only a small portion of the day. It's over like at 10 or 11 o'clock on most days. Even though they have expanded to some all-day breakfast items, I'm sure the majority of it does come in the morning there. And that's a huge portion of the profits that's just coming from breakfast. 
Right. Huge chunk of the profits of a huge company. And then, you know, you mentioned some of the reasons, of course, that that's breakfast is all day. The other thing, though, is breakfast is a super habitual thing for a lot of people. So it's a way to really build brand loyalty with someone. If you can get them to be like, I've got that McDonald's on the way to work and I'm going to stop there five days a week and get the same thing. That's where that comes from as well. You mentioned Wendy's. They are getting into it with $20 million. 20,000 new employees. They haven't released the full breakfast menu just yet. I think it comes out next month nationwide, but they're going to do things like the breakfast baconator, the frosty chino, and the honey butter chicken biscuit. All of those sound really good. I guess they tried this in the 80s to do breakfast also, but it just took too long and they discontinued it. But this is their kind of foray back into that. And then they're going to be a major player again in it. They did it a couple of times. They also tried once in 2010 with a pilot, and it didn't really take hold. But this kind of investment, both on the people side and the money side, is something that's unprecedented for Wendy's. And so I'm projecting this will be successful. And also the company itself is saying it's going to be 10% of total sales pretty quickly. We've seen the rise of delivery apps, whether it's Postmates or Grubhub or any one of these food delivery apps, Uber Eats even. And one of the things that I didn't realize was that it's kind of hampering the foot traffic for lunch and dinner at a lot of restaurants. A lot of places we're seeing maybe some profits rising, more sales throughout the day and all, but less people in the stores. And it's because of these. But the one place that has been untouched is breakfast. So this is the big growth opportunity. Food delivery apps are expected to do over $75 billion in sales in the next few years. And they are really cannibalizing lunch and dinner. But when it comes to breakfast... Partly because the breakfast items are usually cheaper, so that few dollars delivery fee seems less worth it. And also because people are usually on the go and they're getting breakfast, so they're not you know, waiting for it to get delivered. Breakfast is the one where stores still have a chance to get people to come in and where food delivery apps are not really taking share away from the foot traffic. And so because of that, breakfast is the only meal of the day where U.S. restaurant traffic is growing. Yeah, they've also pointed to the breakfast for dinner trend. I personally love that. I mean, eggs any time of the day and I'm sold. But that's another angle to this, too, is that uh, as these restaurants do expand those all day breakfast offerings, that's going to also play into even the delivery services. Right. And then that goes the other way, right? I mean, who doesn't want a chicken sandwich for breakfast? And it's not a traditional fried chicken sandwich, it's a traditional breakfast food. But these restaurants are debuting that and, and having a lot of success with it. Erica Pandy, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Finally, for this week, there's a drug called Kratom that is gaining popularity across the country, and some say there could be between 10 and 15 million users in the U.S. alone, with a thriving culture of Kratom users online. People are taking Kratom for everything from chronic pain relief to replacement of their morning coffee and even to get high. Available in head shops and some gas stations, the federal government has been considering a total ban after finding it in the system of some who have died of drug overdoses. For more on this story and what Kratom is all about, we spoke to Emma Gray Ellis. She's a writer at Wired. I'm out here in Portland, Oregon, um, and the story came to my attention because in Portland, uh, Kratom or Kratom or Ketom or however you want to say it um, ha- is, is fairly common in its use. In fact, um, according to Google Trends, this is the highest search volume per capita anywhere in the United States. Um, and so you'll just see um, <laughs> you'll just see signs on corner stores saying, you know, Kratom sold here. Uh, and, and I got curious about it. And then I decided to write a piece uh, outlining what we do know. And, and as you said, a lot of it ends up being about what we don't know. 
And you visited a woman whose name is Faith Day, and she runs one of only two Kratom businesses that are licensed by the Department of Agriculture in the entire country. So I guess, you know, she knows what she's doing there. Tell us about her and what she does there with her shop. Absolutely. Um, Faith is a really interesting person. Um, uh, she struggled with substance abuse um, for most of her life, was in and out of jail, struggled with homelessness, and, you know, at, was out of options. Um, and she came across uh, a, an article about Kratom suggesting that it might help her get off of the substance that she was abusing. And um, it worked for her within two weeks, uh, which is incredible. And not everyone who takes, you know, takes this drug has a story like that. Hers is on, you know, the more dramatic side of things. But for her, it was, you know, she never went back. And after two weeks had sort of committed her life to making this drug accessible to other people, um, out of the hope that it would help others the way that it helped her. Um, and so since then, she's opened uh, a, a shop called Clean Crate in Portland, in, in Portland, and she also has a location uh, over in Colorado. Um, and it, for all the world, it looks like a coffee shop or a high-end dispensary. You'd never, you know, there's not a, <laughs> not a touch of seediness uh, to it at all. Um, and, you know, and it's on a, a trendy street intermixed with, you know, bars and, and restaurants. And it's just, you know... Uh, a regular part of life and it's you know licensed with the department of agriculture and i think the fda as um, a food substance because it's not technically regulated as a drug and so what do we know exactly about kratom i mean everybody seems to agree it's i mean it's a plant it's like kind of like an herbal supplement i guess you can maybe classify it as even sure. so what do we know about it specifically and then why are the fda and the cdc trying to ban it because this is legal except for just a few states that have banned it overall that's correct. Um, so what we know for sure is that there's a long uh, history of use in Southeast Asia, which is where um, the tree grows wild. And so day laborers would uh, chew on leaves as a kind of, you know, for a boost like caffeine uh, at the start of the day uh, to get through their work. And then at the end of the day, um, might brew the leaves into tea, which extracts different compounds that have more of a sedative, maybe pain-relieving effect. Um, and so it's been used for at least hundreds of years that way. Um, and so that's what we know for sure. Um, and uh, there's lots of compounds in it that people are curious about what exactly that they do. Um, but it's, but it, you know, again, it's not, it's not clear. Some people have said that they might have some anti-cancer properties. Some other people have said that, you know, uh, and this is where the FDA uh, and others come in. They, you know, they do bind to the same receptors in your brain as opioids. And so, you know, that's of concern uh, for the DEA. Uh, and it's especially because it's been, the drug's been found in the system of people who have unfortunately uh, died of drug overdose. Um, and so, you know, the CDC has found dozens of cases in which this is the case, which in which this is true. Um, and so I think that would be cause for concern you know, for, for anyone if, if you're finding this, you know, pri this drug primarily in the system of people who, who are really struggling or, or have actually died. There might have been other substances in these people involved in these overdose deaths. It just so happens that Kratom was also there. It follows a kind of logic, though, right? Like if people are trying to use Kratom to get off of drugs that they don't want to be on anymore, you know, those people might also be ones who might suffer overdose. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a way to end your addiction, but it's not, it's not an instant cure. Right. There's been a few surveys done about Kratom use. From what I've seen is that maybe about two-thirds of users say they use the drug to treat 
chronic pain or mental mm-hmm. uh, or emotional orders like anxiety and depression and whatnot. And there's not very many that are using it recreational to get high or things like that. But I did want to ask you because you, you went out to the shop there in Portland. You did try some of this Kratom. What is mm-hmm. it like? What does it do to you? Well, so, you know, my experience is limited, um, but I would say that in the low amount that I took, um, at first you feel a little bit like you drank a cup of coffee, and then you feel a little bit like you drank a glass of wine. Uh, it was like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively mild and mellow sort of experience. And how long would you say that whole experience lasted? Oh, I, you know, maybe, maybe two hours, like at most. It's not... You know, it's not an especially sort of debilitating might be the wrong word, but it's not as if you're you're going on a trip on, right. on a Kratom or something like that. The thing about this, too, is that there's the one shop that you went to there in Portland. There's only two approved shops, I guess, that are out there in the country. But really where Kratom has a lot of the culture is growing is really online. There's a lot of Facebook groups mm-hmm. and subreddits that are devoted to Kratom and people that are using it and, and people that are talking about how much they love it. Absolutely. Um, it's also popular on Instagram. Uh, it's something that uh, fitness influencers in particular will sell as supplements. You know, there's, I mean, the internet has a thriving supplement business in general. And so it makes sense to me that this would fit in with the rest of them, right? And especially because that's how it's mostly available. It's like the, um, you know, Face Days is one of the few, you know, licensed with the FDA, but there's no reason at this point, uh, sorry, um, Department of Agriculture. And, uh, and but there's no reason to be at this point, right? So she's sort of being proactive with the with the legal system, um, and so you can find plenty of other shops in Portland and, and most cities, you know, because this is not something that's sort of geographically bounded. It's a nationwide thing um, that that sell it alongside, you know, herbal teas or something like that. It's you know, it's very much something that people um, are are selling locally. But I think that uh, because there is, you know maybe some questions about its legality and, you know, perhaps some of these people who are interested in it are also struggling. It is something that's sold um, online quite a bit. Um, But that is some, uh, in a way that it can be where uh, some of the problems occur because people do tend to make false claims about what exactly its effects are. In the meantime, it really seems like it's gaining in popularity. There are some places that have banned it but there's also a few states are trying to maybe save it, I guess. There's been something called the Kratom Consumer Protection Act that was passed in a few states and pending in Oregon. There's still a lot more that needs to be known about this. Yeah, and I think that, you know, um, when you ban a drug, one of the things that it does is that it makes scientific research of that substance significantly harder. Um, And so some of the most compelling advocates that I heard um, against the ban were were actually scientists who study um, the, you know, drugs and drug use. And they, they, you know, it's like we, tons of people are using this. Uh, A ban is not an effective way to really make people stop using a substance. And if you cut off all legal avenues um, for study and for purchase, then you're, you know, people are going to be taking a product that's less safe and we're going to know less about it. And so whether or not Kratom is something that everyone should be using, I think is, is a, you know, an unanswerable question at this point. And I think that the, the answer is probably not everyone should be using it, of course. Um, but I think that it does merit more, more study. And in order to do that, it, it makes it a lot easier to keep legal channels open. Emma Gray Ellis, writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.